Well, my friends, if you haven't realized it by now, America is at war, really at war, an existential war for the future of this country. There's an old saw that says that generals and admirals are always preparing to fight the last war. That's true for populations as well. We're all prepared to fight the last war. We thought that the censorship and the intimidation would come in the form of men with guns with black uniforms, and so we prepared ourselves for that. We are a heavily armed culture, but they're not coming at us with uh, guys with machine guns, and they're not coming at us with guys in tanks. They're coming at us with ideas. They're coming at us with psychological warfare. They're coming at us with emergency mandates. They're coming at us with weapons that we not only were not ready for, we couldn't even imagine. We are at war, and we are at a stage in this war that has been repeated many times in human history, so this is what I want to talk to you about today. I study history, I study the history of warfare, and I don't just study one war, I, I try very hard to study all war. I'm looking for patterns in this most awful of human endeavors, and I found a few. And what I want to do is I want to give you three examples from history and try and show you why these examples fit where we are today in this cultural war, and then we can draw some conclusions from that history. So let's start with the first one. On March 21st, 1918, the final year of World War I, the German army launched what was known as the Ludendorff Offensives. It began with Operation Michael. The Germans had been massing troops behind the line for quite a long time, and we have to remember that Germany at the time was sitting on about a third of France that it had taken very early in the war. The trench warfare that had continued for three bloody years was not going anywhere. British and French assaults would continue to gain a few hundred yards at the cost of 15,000 people, 16,000 killed in the first day, really within the first hour, just on the Battle of the Somme alone for the British Army. The Germans had the high ground. That's where they put the line. They had well-fortified bunkers, and they were killing the French and the, and the British at a ratio of about three to one. The Germans knew that if they could just simply hold that line against repeated attacks, sooner or later, the British and the French would run out of will or men or blood or treasure or all of them, and then they would sue for peace. There would be an armistice and a peace treaty, and the new border of Germany would be covering all of the territory that they'd taken from France at the beginning of the war. And this was their plan, and that plan was working. But when America entered the war in 1917, that equation changed. It wasn't felt for a while yet, but by the time you got to early 1918, American troops were coming ashore in France in large numbers, and those numbers were getting larger every day. And that changed the equation. Now the Germans realized that time wasn't on their side anymore. Time was on the side of the Allies. If they didn't end this war now, meaning early 1918, then the buildup of Americans, millions of Americans, and not these, not these scrawny coal miner sons from uh, northern England. We're talking about corn-fed, beef-fed Iowa farm boys who were seven, eight inches taller than the, the troops that they were replacing. They knew that the Americans would end the war, and the Germans had to finish the war before the Americans could really arrive in force. So they launched this sneak attack called Operation Michael. And here's the thing you need to remember about all three of these examples. Even though there was some indication that they were building up forces, on the morning of that attack, that attack was so successful, it was so unexpected, the tactics that they were using were so new. They were no longer advancing in lines. The Germans had small groups of stormtroopers, is what they called them, with flamethrowers, and they would just bypass all of these hard points and just kept pushing. So in the first day or two of Operation Michael, in a war that had measured a huge victory by 500 yards, 
found the Germans 15, 20, 30 miles behind them. And as the Allies continued to retreat, they would find that the place they think they're retreating to has already fallen to the Germans. In the first few weeks of Operation Michael, everybody in the English and French armies and England and France as well, to the degree that they got the information, were pretty sure that they had lost the war, that this overwhelming tide, this unstoppable tide of German army troops simply could not be resisted. And Operation Michael spread, found its limits, ran out of steam. They launched two more, weren't as successful. They ran out of steam. And let's leave that example there for a minute. Okay, second example, 22nd of June, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. Adolf Hitler launches an assault into the Soviet Union. Very similar in a lot of ways to the Ludendorff offensives. Massive buildups along the border, but the Soviets simply couldn't believe it was coming. They simply could not believe it, that their pact with Adolf Hitler would be broken by a sneak attack, and that's what it was. It was the largest offensive in history, and when those German tanks and troops started to roll on that morning, their gains were simply unimaginable. The Russians were so unprepared for this. Three or four hours before the attack started, a German deserter crossed the river, swam over to the Soviet lines and said, this attack is coming, it's coming in two hours. They radioed this back to the Kremlin. Stalin had that man shot because he was convinced he was a provocateur. The Germans cut, captured so much territory so fast and killed so many people, including my wife's grandfather, that it seemed like there would be no way to stop these Germans. And they kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. Utter panic, virtually all of the Soviet Air Force, the Red Air Force, was destroyed within the first couple days of that first offensive. Virtually all of them, something like 15,000 planes destroyed. Stalin was so astonished and, and, and shocked by this that he simply disappeared. He simply disappeared. Here's a dictatorship run by a dictator. The dictator's gone to his dacha, and he is sitting there having a nervous breakdown. And the Germans just kept coming, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. It was a sneak attack, and it had one objective, to take the Soviet Union out of the war, meaning capture Moscow, destroy the political structure of the Soviet Union, and turn all of Russia into a group of partisans which they could handle. But they had to knock Russia out of the war. That's what Operation Barbarossa was designed to do. And in the early phases of it, they faced the same confusion that they faced during the Ludendorff offensives. What is going on? This, they're unstoppable. They're unbeatable. The war is lost. We've lost the war. It's over. We've never seen this kind of an attack before. Confusion and panic everywhere. So that's the second example. Now, the third example is the one I want to concentrate on the most. It happened six months later. It happened on the morning of December 7th, 1941, when the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. It was a sneak attack, and it had an objective as well. Its objective was to eliminate the United States Navy in the Pacific. That's what the Japanese hoped to accomplish. And they damn near did it, too. They sank most of the battleships that were in Pearl Harbor. They essentially destroyed the U.S. Pacific Fleet. They thought that if they could destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet, then they could convince America that what Japan wanted in Southeast Asia, the United States could no longer stop them from achieving. The Japanese really never intended to invade America. They wanted access to all the oil and rubber in Southeast Asia, and the American Navy stood in their way. So they had a sneak attack that destroyed the American Navy at Pearl Harbor on that morning. And we all know how that story goes. In the very first minutes of the attack with the Japanese planes coming in low underneath this brand new mysterious radar thing, 
there were multiple reports of kids out there playing baseball or, or wives hanging out clothes to dry on laundry lines and seeing these green planes come over with the red meatballs on the wings and seeing the pilots in the planes waving at them, waving down at them. And they waved back. Had to be a training mission of some kind, surely. When the bombs started falling in Pearl Harbor and things started to explode, most American sailors thought that this was a training exercise. They simply could not believe what they were seeing. I had that same exact experience on the morning of September 11th. I could not believe my eyes. And the Japanese sneak attack was astonishingly successful. It was one of the greatest single raids in history. It essentially destroyed the U.S. fleet. Didn't get our carriers, and that made a difference, but the U.S. Navy was out of the game, and out of the game for a while. And we know about Pearl Harbor, but we forget that for the following six months, and I mean every single day, for the following six months. The Japanese just went at will. Two, three days after uh, Pearl Harbor, they destroyed a, a British task force, in, uh, including two of their best battleships. They took over the entire Southeast Asia area. They just ran over everything. There's nothing could stop them. Knocked us out of the Philippines. They were an unstoppable force. In the hours after Pearl Harbor and in the days and the weeks and even the months after Pearl Harbor, whether you remember it or not, not many of us do anymore, unfortunately, the reaction in the United States of America was panic, despair, and a belief that we had lost a war before it had even started. That's what people felt in the hours after that sneak attack and the days after that sneak attack, and that's what the Russians felt in the days after that Operation Barbarossa sneak attack, and that's what the Allies felt in the days after that Operation Michael sneak attack. So let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you. On the morning of November 5th, 2020, radical anti-American forces launched an attack on the United States government. I have no question about that whatsoever. They'd been building their forces for a long time. And like the Americans at Pearl Harbor and in the White House and like the Russians and like the Allies, we saw them building their forces, but we were convinced that they wouldn't come. We were convinced that we had adequate defenses against this threat, and so we ignored the threat. And that's what we've been doing for the last 20 years or so, watching them get stronger and stronger, watching them mass their forces. Well, we woke up and found out that the election had been unusual, that voting machines had stopped counting for hours, then started counting again when they were supposed to be shut down for the night, and all of the vote tallies were different. Not going to get into the details of that. You could make the case that the preparation began uh, pretty much a year, almost nine months before that, with the entire COVID pandemic, which turned out worked out pretty well for the forces that were arrayed against America. So we were prepared for a government coming after us with guns, but we weren't prepared for an internal coup that uh, would use electronics of uh, voting machines, and we certainly weren't prepared for a bioweapon attack that turned out to be precisely calibrated to be just destructive enough to cause mass widespread hysteria, but not so destructive as to destroy basic society. That was a sneak attack. And during the entire last year, we together, all of us, have looked around in panic and despair and amazement and disbelief at the absolutely unstoppable attack that the left has launched against everything that we stand for as Americans. We didn't expect it to come from our own government. We didn't think that the FBI would be one of the major sources on the other side. But that's how sneak attacks work, you see. In the Ludendorff offensives, the Germans had no chance 
to defeat the French and British armies. No chance. The only thing that those offensives were launched for was to introduce enough panic and enough disarray to cause the Allies to surrender, to cause them to surrender. That was the objective. Not to beat them because they couldn't, but to cause them to surrender. When the Germans invaded Russia, their objective was to eliminate organized resistance. They could deal with bands of partisans. They wanted the Red Army ended as a, as a fighting unit, and in order to do that, they had to take Moscow, and they failed. The Japanese had to end the U.S. Pacific Force, and they failed. They got most of it, but they failed. They needed America to surrender. Hitler needed the Russians to surrender. Ludendorff needed the Allies to surrender. And panic and disarray and hair on fire running around, my God, it's the end of the world, is what happened in all of those cases, but they didn't surrender. And that's what's happening right now, right here. Exactly that. That's exactly what's happening. We are running around with our hair on fire, unbelievably looking at the carnage around us and lamenting to ourselves that this has got to be the end. There's no way to stop this. This sneak attack that they launched on us has succeeded. It's all over. That's okay to feel that. Everybody felt that. Everybody did. But it's a funny thing about a sneak attack, you see. You only get to do that once. You only get to wave down at the uh, American housewives as you come in over the island once. You only get to do that once. Once the enemy has taken that hit, meaning the Americans in this particular case, you don't get to fly over Hawaii unmolested anymore. In fact, after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese never got within 100 miles of Pearl Harbor, never got within 500 miles of Pearl Harbor, I don't think. So, where are we now in the culture war? What I'm seeing everywhere right now, today, is that the resistance to this unbelievable sneak attack, this massive assault that the left has been preparing for a long, long time, what I'm seeing is after initial panic and despair, the defenses are starting to stiffen and their offensive is running out of momentum. They do not have the power to put us out of the game. And they never did. None of these sneak attacks ever had the power to defeat us. They only had the power to make us surrender. And they didn't. Which now brings me to the main point, believe it or not. And that is the point of the title of this particular uh, essay. On the morning of December 6th, 1941, the day before the attack, Americans comfortably believed that our fleet at Pearl Harbor, prior to the U.S. Navy, would be enough to stop the Japanese, would be enough to deal with them if things turned into a shooting war. Well, we were wrong about that. As an example, the most famous loss during Pearl Harbor was the battleship USS Arizona, which was destroyed by a bomb into the magazine and still rests at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, right next to the Missouri, where the battle was won. But USS Arizona, one of those battleships that was going to defend America from the Japanese, was commissioned on the 17th of October, 1916. That was a World War I battleship. That battleship was commissioned before the United States even entered World War I. That battleship was obsolete, and so was everything else in the Pacific Fleet. It was obsolete. They were all obsolete. The Japanese had newer ships, better ships, better training, air power, all of those things. The thing that we counted on to defend us against the Japanese on the morning of December 6th, the thing that we had so much confidence in, this magnificent Pacific Fleet, would have been eaten alive by the Japanese Navy if we had met them out at sea. Because like the Arizona, it was obsolete. And I can prove this. 
because in the years following the Pearl Harbor attack, many of those battleships were raised, not the Arizona, obviously, but many of her sisters of about the same vintage, older ships that had been in place for a long time prior to the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. And by the time it came to end the war with victory, all of those battleships that had been at Pearl Harbor could no longer keep up with the Navy. They would bombard shore positions and shell them on Iwo Jima or Guam or wherever else we wanted to go. But in terms of a Navy sent out to kill other ships, the ships that came from Pearl Harbor couldn't keep up. They were obsolete. They remained obsolete. What won the war for the Americans in the Pacific was not the fleet that was destroyed at Pearl Harbor. What won the war in the Pacific was the second fleet. What won the war in the Pacific against the Japanese was the second fleet. Not the one at the sands of the bottom of Pearl Harbor, the one that was built as a result of Pearl Harbor. The super battleships that we eventually produced, Washington-class, South Dakota-class, and then incredible Iowa-class battleships, the aircraft carriers, the Essex-class carriers, far more capable than the trusty Enterprise in Lexington and Saratoga. The fleet that beat the Japanese was not the fleet that we lost. The fleet that we lost was our first fleet, and it would not have beaten the Japanese. It was not capable of it, but the second fleet did. The second fleet blew them out of the water, and that ended with radioactive ash in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's how Pearl Harbor ended. I think right now that we are looking around at the wreckage of what we thought would defend us against these people. And we're still looking at things burning. But now, in the back of our minds, we are starting to put together in our own minds, in our own thoughts, what this second fleet of ours will look like. What the fleet that will destroy this left-wing sneak attack will look like in this culture war. We don't have the outlines of it yet, but whatever it's going to be, obsolete is not one of them. Right now, we're beginning the process of going from the one on the right, which is sitting in the mud at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, to the one on the left, which is going to take this war to our enemies and finish them once and for all. And they are going to suffer the same fate as every other insane, aggressive force that ever launched a sneak attack against an enemy that cannot be beaten unless they surrender. And we didn't surrender. So they're going to lose. And they're going to lose hard. Oh, Lord, I hate being wrong. Hey, everybody, I'm Steve Green with Bill Little and Scott Ott, and this is Right Angle, brought to you by the members of BillLittle.com. Uh, gentlemen, you know, I was not actually nervous about nuclear war with the Soviet Union back in the bad old days, despite all the rhetoric and all the missiles and all the rest. And the reason was mutual assured destruction, or MAD, which meant both sides had so many nukes, we could destroy the world so many times that it would be absolute madness for anybody to launch a first strike because it would be the end of humanity and maybe all life on Earth. So let's not do that. But what happens if we've reached a point where we've gotten so lax that another competitor might see a window of nuclear opportunity opening against us in the not too distant future. Um, anyway, gentlemen, that's what I got from this uh, new report I read in Real Clear Politics on Mondays by a couple of defense analysts named Norman Haller and uh, Peter Pry. And the scenario they painted is 
by about 2030, China will have enough missiles with enough warheads to take out our entire fleet of Minuteman missiles in a surprise attack, leaving the American president with a very unpleasant choice. And the choice would either be to accept the new status quo, where one third of our nuclear triad is gone, or he could launch a counterattack on China and probably Russia too, which would not be big enough to take out everything they will have in 2030, leaving them with no choice but to retaliate against the only targets that they would have left against us. And that would be places like New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Austin, all of our population centers. Um, Scott, if you're the American president and this happens to you, which one of those awful choices do you go with? Well, first of all, let me just say that I've never felt better about living in the exurbs. Um, <laughs> Same. Living far away from the core of the city and uh, any kind of manufacturing apparatus. Um, you know, I it's so hard to speculate about things like this. Um, I grew up during this time when we were all supposed to be afraid of an imminent uh, Soviet attack uh, with nuclear arms and the American response and then the, uh, you know, the long nuclear winter that would follow. Um, I can't honestly say that it ever really concerned me. Um, and it's kind of like you and it's and, and I was older than you. So, uh, you know, ostensibly anyway, I was a little more aware. However, I did not have your like seven year old sensibility of studying the details of mutually assured destruction. I was in my teens. A... <laughs> I was a weird teenager, but I was in my teens. <laughs> So I didn't have as cogent a reason for not being afraid of it. I, I just kind of figured that that's, that's just not something people are going to do. So even under despotic regimes, uh, those regimes, in my view, I've always felt like they were, the people within those regimes were as much prisoners as those that they were oppressing. And uh, so given the opportunity uh, to destroy everything, that they would step back from the precipice. And as Bill uh, mentioned in our backstage episode, visible to members only at BillWhittle.com. Um, this has happened twice in history where the, uh, the, the Soviet system, in essence, failed because of humanity, <laughs> because there were two individuals who said, Niet. And uh, so, I, you know, I've still always counted on that that way. Now, we really, in a sense, the the Chinese communist government is still that sort of hidden kingdom that we don't fully understand. And there are a handful of China experts who at American universities who are studying this stuff, but I don't think we can fully comprehend the way they think. So as usual, I think we're back on, on Reagan's uh, old credo, which is trust but verify and, and find ways to get as much intel as we can and guard ourselves against the negative consequences of these things. But it's hard to imagine any American president uh, just unleashing a full bore counterattack, even in the event oh. of a first strike. Well, the, the point the authors were making is absent our 450 Minutemen missiles, which would be taken out in this theoretical first strike, we don't have the capability to launch an overwhelming counterattack. We simply don't have enough sea launch uh, uh, Trident missiles, and presumably this first strike would include our nuclear air bases like the, the big one in Nebraska. Um, so the point is we couldn't 
hit back in a way that would be meaningful without them being able to hold our, our cities hostage. Well, and um, I, and I Bill, can't imagine that the that the Minuteman, uh, you know, locations are so bereft of defense, like we don't see anything coming until it's too late, in which case, why bother even having these things if you know yeah. that in a first strike, we'd lose them all every every scenario? Ah, well, we may have cut down too far. That's that's what I'm afraid of. Bill, I don't actually worry about this kind of scenario happening, or at least, at least I don't yet. But between uh, what the Pentagon is calling Beijing's strategic breakout, they're, they're digging holes in the ground, silos for another 230 ICBMs that could hold, well, up to 2,300 uh, warheads, which would be very bad news for us. Uh, we saw their, uh, their hypersonic missile test a couple of weeks ago. Uh, should we be having a Sputnik moment right now when it comes to China? We should be having a Sputnik moment right now, but I don't think China's the problem. No. Uh, let's Since that's the topic of the show, let's just deal with that real fast. Uh, China's building more uh, silos because China wants to be recognized as a world superpower. And world superpowers have a certain number of rocket silos and a certain number of nuclear missiles. And China is all about perceived in, uh, inferiority. Their inferiority complex runs everything. Everything they do. So, uh, yes, they're going to put in enough nuclear weapons so that they can say we have more nuclear weapons than anybody. Now, you mentioned the Cold War and all the time we spent underneath Soviet nu nuclear missiles and they spent under ours. And one of the things I remember from those days is uh, saying that went to something to the effect that, you know, just one 50 megaton thermonuclear hydrogen bomb can ruin right, your whole day. day. And, uh, and, and so that is true. So essentially, Steve, as far as I think I can see, as long as the United States has the ability to deliver a single thermonuclear hydrogen bomb over Beijing, there is no equation where that first strike attack makes sense. We certainly would have enough weapons to do much more than just put one bomb over one city. Oh, yeah. So just to play your scenario out for the fun of it, and I'll get to what I think the real threat is. If this scenario comes true and they launch a decapitation strike against our ground-based Minutemen missiles, and we're only left with the sea triad, what these guys are saying is, we wouldn't have enough to take out all of their stuff. My response would be, you launch nuclear weapons against my country, we're gonna take out enough of your airfields so that you, we will have your undivided attention. And from that point forward, we will retain enough of our nuclear deterrent to melt every single one of your major cities. And that only takes 15, 20 warheads. We don't have to, we don't have to hit them back as hard as they hit us. If it were me, I'd launch a nuclear counterstrike against their military targets. And then I would say, then we'd have a serious conversation. But look, as long as we can deliver a, essentially, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly here. As long as we can deliver a, a, essentially one H bomb where it hurts the most, then I don't see any reason why they would, why they would do this. So I'm not overly concerned about a Chinese first nuclear strike. Now, with that said, there are two things that I am concerned about. One of them is the appearance of weakness on the part of a country that is not willing to keep up with somebody else arming up. When you're dealing with somebody like the Chinese or the, the Nazis or the Soviets or anything else, it's all about the perception of strength. They're not fully sane people in the sense that we understand the term. And if you don't like that, China, then stop fishing in everybody else's waters. Stop, be, stop doing everything that you're doing that's illegal. Start getting into some inter international treaties. But it's the perception of weakness that is a danger, Steve, from a conventional point of view. So if we don't keep up our nuclear arsenal, 
That will be yet another signal to the Chinese that we are a declining power, that we're not a serious power. And I think that puts us at more risk for a conventional war in, in place of Taiwan. But just to put a button on all of this, if you want to ask me what I'm afraid of in terms of weaknesses in American defense, it is the astonishing deterioration of the human element. We had lost a, um, we'd lost an amphibious carrier, the Bonhomme Richard, because a disgruntled Navy uh, uh, sailor set fire to it. And the incompetence of the commanding officer, the incompetence of the, of the crew in terms of the, which is not really their fault in terms of firefighting techniques and so on, we lost what is essentially a small aircraft carrier because one guy decided he didn't like the Navy. A couple of weeks ago, one of our three Sea Wolf class submarines, the top submarine in the world, the most effective submarine in the world, the Virginia class that we're building a lot of is a scaled down version of the Sea Wolf, USS Connecticut hit a rock. Uh, and uh, submarines are not supposed to hit rocks. Commanding officer was relieved. The XO was relieved. I think the chief of the watch was relieved. The Connecticut was probably damaged badly enough so that it will not return to service. So there's our uh, amphibious uh one of our amphibious carriers, we've got three or four of those things, Bon Humbershard, gone. One guy mad at the Navy, that asset is gone. Guys hitting underwater rocks because they're not paying attention to where they are. One of our three best attack submarines, probably gone forever. I saw Bill, that story said, was pitched as saying the reason why they hit that, it was an uncharted underwater mountain um, that, that was not on the maps um, that should have been. The Navy that. just relieved that was, the captain, the XO, and the uh, chief enlisted officer on that boat for uh, uh, loss of that's. Pay. I would have given it to them. I would have given it to them as an un, as an unmarked underwater thing, but you don't relieve the commanding officer or any of that stuff if that's the case. So clearly there's more to the story than that. And I saw a story uh, today. Uh, I think I saw it in Spinet where, um, where there are reports of, for, for the last 20 years, people supplying the steel for the submarine hulls were faking the strength of the steel. They were lying about how strong the steel was in the submarines that our, that our sailors uh, uh, go out to sea and just plain lied about it. That's what you should be deathly afraid of. You should be deathly afraid of administrative errors. You should be deathly afraid of of um, of the idea that a single individual with a with a bad attitude can take out an asset of that size. And you should most especially be afraid of the fact that the command director of the United States Navy didn't catch any of these things, didn't train the crews to deal with them, has allowed this to get worse and worse and worse. And now we have a, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who says things like, uh, uh, domestic terrorism and uh, and racial intolerance and global warming are our primary threats. This is the kind of Navy you will get with that kind of leadership. It's the kind of military you'll get with that kind of leadership. That scares the living daylights out of me. And that is a problem that we can solve. And whether we will solve it or not is uh, still to be seen. Yeah, that was that was really good stuff. And I, I can actually sum up what Bill just said in, in one word. And the word is readiness. <laughs> That's usual. Readiness. Yep. That is... The key ingredient we're missing. Readiness means having a capable nuclear force. It doesn't have to be huge like the Cold War days, but it can't consist of nothing but 50-year-old missiles and too few sea-launched ballistic missiles. Um, we need we need a navy that is large enough to cover the oceans at our trade and is well trained enough that we're not hitting rocks underwater, taking out multi-billion-dollar attack submarines. Uh, right. 
running into other ships. We lost, we had oh, yeah. two destroyer collisions. Readiness means maintaining those ships. Oh, good Lord. You see the condition of some of our warships right now, and it's sad. Readiness means maintaining our air fleet ready to go. I mean, we may have to go back to having Air Force bombers on standing watch again, like we did back in the bad old days. But that improves your readiness because you've got those pilots, you've got those air crews, you've got those ground crews training 24-7. It all comes down to readiness. But the most important readiness element has to be the man at the top. And it means not having a commander in chief who is literally asleep at the wheel. And that's your right angle on that, brought to the members of <clears throat> Pardon me by the members of BillWhittle.com. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. The Democrat Party is evil. It's diabolical. Its leaders are evil and diabolical. Its media south, uh, surrogates and mouthpieces are evil and diabolical. That's the truth. That's a fact. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. The insanity never ends. The insanity never ends. Um, this is from uh, FT.com. Foreign policy uh, site. Allies lobby Biden to prevent shift to no first use of nuclear arms. U.S. allies are lobbying Biden not to change American policy on the use of nuclear weapons amid concern the president is considering a no-first-use declaration that could undermine long-established deterrence strategies aimed at Russia and China. Now, why would that even enter your cranium, as small as its cranium is? Why to even consider telling the communist Chinese, the fascistic Russians... The communist North Korean inbred, the Islamo-Nazi regime in Tehran, and the rest of our enemies all over the world. You strike us first. Only then will we shoot back. I mean, what is that? That's no deterrence at all. In fact, it's a provocation. The lobbying by treaty allies, including Britain, France, and Germany in Europe, and Japan and Australia in the Indo-Pacific, comes as the Biden administration is in the middle of a nuclear posture review a regular interagency process that sets U.S. policy on nuclear weapons. Although some allies believe Biden will refrain from setting a no-first-use policy in the review, most remain concerned he's considering a policy known as, quote, sole purpose, unquote, which would make clear the United States would use nuclear weapons only in narrowly prescribed sets of circumstances, such as to deter a direct attack on the U.S. or retaliate after a strike. This would be a huge gift to China and Russia, one European official said. American policy towards the use of nuclear weapons has, since the Cold War, remained intentionally vague, suggesting the U.S. could use them preemptively and allowing allies in both Europe and Asia a clear sense of protection under the American nuclear umbrella. The problem with sole purpose and no first use is that the Allies believe it and the adversaries don't, said Michael Green. Some Allies remain worried that U.S. officials have not conveyed the extent of their opposition directly to the President. Fears exasperated by the administration's failure to heed Allied concerns over the withdrawal from Afghanistan and a nuclear submarine agreement with Australia. 
more than a dozen European and Asian officials and critics on Capitol Hill told the Financial Times that Allied fears have risen as the posture review nears its conclusion, which is expected by the end of the year. And a sign of rising Allied concern, a commitment to a credible and united nuclear alliance was included in a joint statement following Friday's Biden-Macron meeting, as was a promise of close consultations on nuclear issues. This is unbelievable. Sole purpose nuclear policy is just no first use by another name. And to even consider adopting either is a complete betrayal of our allies. I would argue it's a complete betrayal of us. Senator James Risch, the top Republican in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, told the Financial Times. Unbelievable. Richard Fontaine, chief executive of the Center for a New American Security in Washington, argued the threats from Russia, China, North Korea have only increased since the Obama administration, meaning it was not the time for a U.S. no-first-use pledge. Our nuclear capacity is deteriorating compared to the communist Chinese and the Russians. The Russians have modernized the bulk of their nuclear missiles and weapons. The communist Chinese don't really need to modernize theirs because they're modern. They're building them at a rapid pace. Ours are aging in the silos. We haven't modernized our nuclear weapon arsenal. This is unbelievable to me. What's happening in this country, whether it's immigration, whether it's the war on our, on our fossil fuels, whether it's the war on the economic system, whether it's the brainwashing of our children, right down the line, this is unilateral surrender to communist China. And ladies and gentlemen, I used to say the Chinese are going to surpass us as a superpower in 50 years. I am wrong. If we don't put the brakes to this as soon as possible, it's going to be 10 years. Ten years. And by the time Biden and his Democrats are done, they will hollow out our manufacturing and industrial center in this country. They will cover the country in red tape, making it virtually impossible for technological advances. Their tax plan is going to kill research and development. They're spending enormous amounts of money, borrowing it, taking it from you on redistribution of wealth, creating lazier and lazier citizens... Their bureaucrats, their educational bureaucrats and teacher union thugs don't believe in merit. They're shutting down these schools that, that help propel the brightest among us into incredible positions so they can help our society. No, 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 no. What a disaster. What a disaster. This is why so many people are hopeful about this Virginia race. If we lose it, are going to be so down that we need to start clawing our way back one election at a time. We need to send a message. Whether you're a moderate, a conservative Democrat, or an independent, or a Republican, this is what I say in the beginning of my book. American Marxism, and I mean every word of it. Every word of it. We've got to put aside some things in order to save our country, if you love the country. That's what we have to do. Because we're up against it right now. As I point out, American Marxism has made great progress toward instituting its goals over the past several years. If it is to be defeated, as it must, albeit a daunting and complex mission, 
Its existence must first be acknowledged and labeled for what it is. The urgency of the moment must be realized, and the emergence of a unified, patriotic front, a previously docile, divergent, and or disputatious societal, cultural, and political factions and forces, which have in common their belief that America is worth defending, must immediately galvanize around and rally to the cause. We must rise to the challenge, as did our founding fathers, when they confronted the most powerful force on earth, the British Empire, and defeated it. Admittedly, in numerous ways, today's threat is more Byzantine, as it now inhabits most of our institutions and menaces from within, making engagement difficult and complicated. Nonetheless, I fervently believe America, as we know it, will be forever lost if we do not prevail. If we do not prevail, and prevail now. And prevail now. This is no joke. We have a guy in the Oval Office. It's really the people around him. Are so radical. They're such extremists. Unilaterally disarm in the face of what communist China is doing. Their threats to Taiwan. Their increasing belligerence and bullying of us and our military. This is the moment that will determine whether the United States of America remains the most powerful superpower on the face of the earth or shrinks like Great Britain did. A hundred years ago or so, Great Britain ruled the waves. It was the biggest superpower on earth. Now look at it. It's not even an also-ran, and I don't put down Britain. I like Britain very, very much. The people very, very much. That's not my point. If Athens can fall... If the Roman Empire can fall, and it lasted over a thousand years, we can fall too. And our founding fathers were well aware of this. They were well aware of the possibility that this country would have a limited life. And they tried to set it up so the same kind of poisons and cancers that destroyed previous republics would not destroy this one. They were well familiar with ancient history. They read Plato and Socrates and and Aristotle. They read Cicero and Brutus. They knew what took place. They read the old Hebrews. They knew about Western Enlightenment. And they took it all together. Imported into this country. This country that's destroying itself. The Democrat Party is evil. It's diabolical. Its leaders are evil and diabolical. Its media uh, surrogates and mouthpieces are evil and diabolical. That's the truth. That's a fact. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. 